Welcome to the O'Reilly Design Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Tressler. In this episode, I sit down with designer Christian Simsarian. We talk about design education, design thinking, and the benefits of teaching. Enjoy the show. How did you find your way into the field of design? Oh, that's a great question. And first, I want to say it's a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I always envisioned myself making and designing stuff. In fact, I found a few years ago an essay I'd written to get into a school when I was 12 years old that said I wanted to be a design engineer. And lo and behold, that's not really a title in the world. So um, (laughs) I had some kind of vision. I remember being really, really attracted to the Leonardo da Vinci and the Frank Lloyd Wright of the world that not only designed beautiful things, but actually did the engineering. So I started putting those things together. And I I was sure when I was 11 years old, 12 years old, that there'd be a car with my name on it someday. <laughs> um, that whole vision didn't, didn't last out. But I did make it as far as entering architecture and civil engineering at uh, Columbia. And it was a funny thing. Those departments actually didn't talk while they did at some other schools. Uh, and they had sort of occurred to me while I was implying they want the architecture department was very theoretical and the civil engineering was very boring. So at the time, I, um, in order to kind of save my scholarship, I stuck with the thing I was doing really well in, which was computers. And I wasn't sure what I was going to do with that. But I knew that everyone that was telling me that architecture was a kind of um, dead profession and there were no jobs, there was just as many people saying computers were the wave of the future. So I stuck with that and was doing computers. And somehow that was just coming naturally to me. And uh, but always did real world things. And I got very interested in robotics. And I was doing robotics for quite a while and AI and making things in the real world because I Somehow I just didn't like just the virtual. I liked it to be things moving in the world. And I did robotics for a number of years and AI. And that led me to VR. And about that time um, where I was finding that I was getting sponsored more and more by the Department of Defense and all sorts of military funding, I had an opportunity to go to Sweden to finish my PhD. So I moved from uh, what was then Chicago to um, to Sweden to study with some of the founders of human-centered design, what they called cooperative design. And um, and decided at that moment, again, there was more of sort of that military funding kind of followed me. But I landed at a place called the Swedish Institute of Computer Science and uh, was just a fantastic, not a very well-known, but very concentrated, um, what we'd call a technology play lab doing research where publishing papers and patents was the main output. And um, with some of these founders of Human Centered Design, which is really a political movement in Scandinavia, and I switched from... Uh, Instead of making machines smart, I wanted to make people smart by using machines. So I switched from AI to virtual reality and augmented reality and into what was then, you know, sort of uh, the field of human computer interaction. And I fairly quickly, I think because of my roots and and where I really wanted to go, was doing more design, like working with people, um, trying to shape things and shape things beyond technology, trying to twist technology and do things in different ways. Like we once did a project with a school that... um, was about how can we bring technology into the classroom with no, um, what we called WIMP at the time, no windows, icons, mouse, or pointers. Mm-hmm. So it's like trying to extract the magic of the of the uh, computer. So we set up what we called a kind of cave in a box where we'd have projectors on the walls and um, RFID tags on objects. So you'd move objects around and that would trigger events and sounds. And we had things on the floor where the, where the children could kind of recreate stories. And at the, at the time, I think we were very um, influenced by... Uh, Quentin Tarantino's movie, Pulp Fiction, because <laughs> it was right around 94, 95. 
And we wanted the students to be able to tell Little Red Riding Hood in whatever order they wanted to tell it um, and sort of cut it up and, and uh, tell the story differently by stepping in different parts of the room, and triggering different events. So that was kind of a way of taking the magic of computers into a classroom. And it was very much working with the teachers and the, and the students to kind of come up with a pedagogy and a way of bringing computers in that wasn't sitting people in front of keyboards and doing that kind of work. And so that, that very quickly um, put me into design. And I got a number of grants in, in Europe um, where, they, where they have a very keen awareness that uh, was predating, I think, the U.S.'s awareness of design um, mm-hmm. to do kind of design research and design projects with technology and schools. And you always had to have a partner. So we had schools as a partner and we had art institutions like... Um, there was a place in Germany called the Zentrum for Kunst and Media. So working with different um, real partners. And that led me to IDEO. Actually, there was a moment in my life where about 10 people told me that I should go to IDEO. And one of them was a, one of our kind of cousin projects in this framework that was funding us in the European Union. And another was my uncle who had seen this Nightline video. And then there was a couple of friends who said, hey, you got to talk to my friend at IDEO. So somehow after about 12 interviews and eight months... <laughs> Uh, I went across the Atlantic and came back to San Francisco because that was really my dream was to come back to California because I had grown up in Southern California and um, ended up back kind of feeling at home in design and uh, was at IDEO for about 10, 10, 10 plus years full time, was teaching at night the last few of those and um, got an invitation to start the program at California College of the Arts. So that's briefly my, my way into it, you know, through technology, but with a kind of design route yeah. and um, eventually coming back to it. Wow. What a fun ride. So talk to me about the lessons you're learning and have learned through your years of teaching future designers. Um, this is a great question because I, I think there are so many lessons. Um, many of them are uh, sort of personal, like the this our program, the Interaction Design Program at California College of the Arts, is one of the first in the world. It's certainly the first in California. It's one of the first in the West Coast, and now there's a bunch of them. Um, being the first, you have to found a discipline, and that was a lot of learning for me because I remember standing in front of a a room full of very senior people in the field, um, uh, kind of telling me there was no discipline, <laughs> and, and I was saying, "Well, here's 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 what we think it could be," and it was it was really one of those moments where the, it was hard for people to envision what the future was, and um, and I felt, "Wow, this is the hero's journey that I've been telling so many of my clients about," and so I sort of had to kind of forge forward by making stuff and trying things out, and we founded a curriculum, and I got a bunch of fantastic faculty to join and um, and continue to build the program. So one of the things was just that that difficulty of doing something that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And, and, and actually, in the case of, you know, being a nonprofit educational institution, being kind of alone in that, too, you know, a lot of support from the college, but some skepticism, actually, from from the community until it really started getting going. And, and what I ended up doing was um, putting a design process around how to find the curriculum. So that really I did mass participation, we probably had 200 designers from the Bay Area getting involved in some way or another through events. So that was that was that's one of my big learnings of teaching, yeah. <laughs> you know, also being a founder rather than being a consultant. I had been a consultant for so long, um, you know, giving advice and knowing what the right thing to do is, but not ha- having to do it uh, all of a sudden finding myself being my worst enemy. So, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, here's here's the strategy. And I would outline a strategy and I was like, oh, wait a minute. Now I have to implement this. And I would start paring things down going, OK, we got to get to the minimal viable product, as as one of my um, colleagues, Eric Reese, would say. So I was like trying to. Uh, <laughs> streamline things so my my life was actually doable right right uh, make it yeah. work yeah 
And, you know, one thing I've learned, so we, we started the BFA uh, in 2011, um, and that's a, a three-year undergraduate degree in interaction design. And we say that that's the core of that is systems and behavior. And we say enough visual design to communicate and enough technical skills like programming and coding electronics to demonstrate. And um, we're very careful about that. And then a, a la- last year we launched, I guess two years ago, we conceived a master's degree. Uh, there'd be a one-year, three-semester master's. And one thing we kind of realized as this goes further and further is just the importance of systems. Like we knew systems was a big part of interaction design, mm-hmm. but in many ways it's it's starting to feel as equally systems design as it is, say, the craft of pixels or something or even more. That it's systems at the technical level, systems at the organizational level, like people, mm-hmm. uh, systems at the social level, because like the really interesting problems are rooted in complex social problems or challenges. Mm hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Uh, I Maybe one more, maybe closer to, you know, what you're saying about teaching. I go back to uh, John Dewey a lot. And when I'm working with new teachers, I go back to this a lot. And John Dewey is one of the founders, if not the founder, of progressive education and constructivist education in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And he said there's really three parts to learning. And it's theory, activity, and reflection. And it's like, if you draw those as three circles all connected with arrows going back and forth, what we do at design school is like the activity circle is really large. Like most of what we do is doing. And you need just enough theory to kind of have a framework for the purpose of what you're doing. And you need just enough reflection to kind of uh, inculcate, if you will, like sort of let people sort of really get it deep in their system of why and what they're doing and, and how it works for them. But at a design school, it's really about about the doing and the project-based work that we're doing in the classroom. So there's no tests, for example. And that was that's often a big learning for new teachers. It's like, nope, there's really no tests. It's all about doing. So it looks a lot like design studios. And then there's a real craft in like designing a design brief that's inspirational, but has enough um, assessment uh, quality in it. And uh, I could give an example of one of my favorite design briefs. I think that's relevant. Yes, please do. So an example of uh, uh, one of my favorite design briefs is so it's a really good design brief. It's really simple. It's inspirational. It has a very clear metric of success. So one of my favorites is use technology in some way to make strangers interact. Mm-hmm. And um, so, okay, you're going to use technology. Um, you're going to find a place where there are strangers. And if they interact, then you're successful. And a few years ago, students did this on Market Street in San Francisco, which is a very busy kind of transit corridor and business district. And um There were two projects that I think really stood out. One was students took a bus stop and they hung these uh, little spheres on strings. And when you swung the spheres, they made noise and they made kind of a nice noise. But when you swung them together or in a rhythm together, they made um, harmonies and they started to make music that was more uh, more than the sum, if you will. Mm -hmm. And and that was by design. So these all of a sudden these people are waiting at bus stops and they um, got these balls going and they would discover that, oh, if they work together, that this kind of beautiful music would start happening. And it was really a fantastic project. Strangers are interacting, they're using technology, and students had to overcome things like power, you know, like battery power and hanging things up and dealing with city codes and all sorts of questions they might get on the street. So it was like a really interesting practical solution uh, and practical challenge for the students. And then another one was um, a team of students had taken two old phones that they got at a thrift store and hacked the inside so that when you picked up one, the other one would ring and (laughs) they could talk to each other and they put them across the street from each other. And so they were strange looking. They were like old phones like you haven't seen since the 70s with a rotary dial or Mm -hmm. 
something like that. And you'd pick it up and then the other one would ring and then somebody would see this old phone ringing and they're like, oh, I'll pick it up. And there were just this, these great videos of these strangers talking and, and uh, just laughing and discovering that they're across the street from each other. And, and so those were two of my favorites. And they really met the learning objectives, too, of like students getting out in the world and doing something and meeting this objective of, of the actors in the audience, mm-hmm. uh, like the context and what the intent of that brief was and what the intent of the learning was, mm-hmm. which was hack some things to make them work. And that was that part I said about enough technology to demonstrate. So like in this case, they only needed to know enough uh, electronics or get help enough to to make these phones talk to each other. That's awesome. What fun they must have. Um, (laughs) Very cool. So you mentioned you were at IDEO um, prior to this. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like working there and any takeaways from from your time there? Um, Yeah. So I was there a little over 10 years full-time, and I'm still there. I'm as an IDEO fellow, which is a very, very oh, part-time, right. part-time role. Um, and in a way, I've played almost every role at IDEO. I was an individual contributor, and then I was leading projects, and then I was managing portfolios, and I was managing a business unit, and I was doing business development, and then I was a relationship leader. So I've, I've played a lot of the roles at IDEO, and I, I left as, a, as an associate partner to go found this, um, this program at California College of the Arts. And I guess there's a few... Um, one, I'll say just about, uh, you know, as a designer uh, in all these different roles. And the other one I'll say is about kind of the work itself. Um, one thing I, I learned, and this is something we baked into our curriculums, is uh, especially the master's curriculum, is that positional leadership and personal leadership might coincide, but they're actually different. And I remember um, the first time I had gotten some positional leadership, I didn't quite at first know how to handle it. And I, I had to kind of grow into it and realize that the most important thing was to keep people inspired and to uh, share where they're going and and give autonomy. It's very much like the design brief. It's like basically to create a good brief for all the work we're doing. And that the positional authority really means nothing without that first part of the kind of personal leadership. And so I learned that the hard way. I think I've done much, much better with that since then. And, um, and it really baked that into our master's program, which has a leadership component. Um, so that was a huge learning. And everyone at IDEO is, are, they're just such amazing people. Um, I think just building on one of your other podcasts that where you're talking to Simon, um, just really amazing people that really know how to, to interact and collaborate with other folks. I feel like when I was there, the portfolio is what gets you the job interview. So you have to have a fantastic portfolio. Like you really have to be a craftsperson. Mm-hmm. Of something, it doesn't really matter what the discipline is, as long as it's kind of it's relevant to what IDEO is doing, and you have something to do once you go back to your desk. So we often talk about like heads together and heads down time. So like when it comes down to heads down time, what are you doing at your desk, and are you really really good at it? Mm-hmm. And that's what gets you the interview. And then the interviews, and like I said, I think I had like twelve <laughs> interviews when I joined IDEO, um, are all about uh, can I work with this person? Do I want to work with this person? Does this person inspire me? Are are can we spend uh, six to eight hours in a project room together, kind of conceiving stuff and, and uh, generating stuff together in that kind of heads together or uh, together time? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I just, there was not, you know, in 10 years, I don't think I encountered any rancor. There was definitely uh, challenges and, um, you know, differences of opinion, but um, they were always done so humanly. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I, I really appreciated that. And I don't think the rest of the world is necessarily like that. And I think there's something, something magic about that, about that kind of real people centric, 
uh, thing that's happening there. Mm-hmm. So that was that was one thing. And then about the work, one thing I learned very clearly uh, was working with, I was the relationship lead for our work with Nokia from about 2006 to 2009. And let me see how I can say this succinctly. Um, the, the idea isn't worth anything without execution. And execution is the hard part. So it's the thing I think I learned was the ideas are simple. It's getting it actually launched and out there in the world that's that's really hard. Mm-hmm. And the example with Nokia is when we started working with them, there was disruption coming. They knew it. Everyone knew it. You know, all the major people knew that touchscreens were coming. And um, at the time, Nokia had about 40-something percent market share in the world as a $65 billion company. I think now it's like a $3 billion company or something. And uh, the hard thing, they had all the solutions. They had all the designs. They were as good or better in some ways than Apple's. The hard thing was getting it out there in the world. It was it was actually getting it done and getting the high-level buy-in um, to get things done. And I think it's very hard for designers who often have the solutions and can see the future, often better than other folks, when you see what needs to happen and it's so hard to get it done. And then I think think one thing I've learned is it's really important for designers to be able to talk and collaborate with executives and especially like CEOs and sometimes even boards. Um, And that's not something that's in the design training. And it's not really something that's necessarily in the design uh, personality. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's probably a big opportunity for design as well. And uh, to 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 really work deeply with leadership, because I, I think, you know, I don't know if I need to say it too much, but Nokia had all the answers and really wasn't able to execute. And Apple and Google took over, essentially. Mm-hmm. Well, you see it all the time. I mean, even in what you're talking about and building the program there, you saw what you you knew what you wanted to build. The hard part is like, OK, how do I do this? Especially when you, you're not sure you have, you know, the influence to to make it happen necessarily all the time, depending on who you're talking to. Yeah, and getting resources. So in some ways, like working with the CEO of a big company like Nokia is getting the resources. And there was, um, I remember there was, in that case, there was specifically a moment where the CEO said, okay, you guys can do this internet stuff however you want, but don't touch our phones. <laughs> and, we were, and we were just looking at each other like, what? <laughs> like, we, wait, we got permission, but, you know, and essentially it was the innovator's dilemma, the Clayton Christensen stuff, right. the, the just classic, like, this is the moneymaker, don't touch the phones, do whatever you want but don't cannibalize our, our main product. And yeah, yeah, yeah. We, I would have done that differently now. I think, I think the way to do that is, uh, you know, very much like the lean, lean style is start with one product, do it excellently, and then like grow from there, as opposed to trying to change the whole organization. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that's what I learned, that ideas are cheap, but getting things done is, uh, is really hard. And, it, and I see this with students all the time is they, they say, oh, Christian, I've got this idea, but you've got to promise not to tell anyone, but I want to share and get your feedback. And I was like, first off, I'm not going to make that promise. And second, I know you have millions of ideas and this is just one. So let's let's talk about it and then we'll talk about what it takes to get it made. But there is a kind of belief I, I, among a lot of uh, young people. And when I say young people, I mean, 18 or 19 year olds coming out of high school that that they think that what it is is to come up with an idea and that's the work and that. Um, not realizing yet that actually the work just begins at the idea. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Good point. Um, so your colleague, Ian Coates-McCall, wrote a post, which I think I found through you um, sharing it. And it's an open letter to, to Johnny Ive about specifically education and why professionals should teach. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit more in general terms about what you think about the state of design education today. 
Um, yeah, that I thought that was great. I mean, I think Ian did a really nice job responding. There was something, and it was probably taken partially out of context, that Johnny Ive had uh, dismissed um, design education in some way or another. A lot of where that's coming from is that demand outstrips supply. So there just aren't enough designers on the market. And uh, companies like Apple and Google and Facebook and all the other ones are feeling it acutely. Um, in fact, when we have our internship nights, we have far more suitors than we do students, <laughs> which which we like. You know, we in fact, we have our uh, we have the company's pitch to the students. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And it creates a lot of fun. It's we do it in the Pecha Kucha style and every every company gets we it's modified about two and a half minutes. And and by the end of it, they're sort of outdoing each other. I remember Zebo went at the end because we went alphabetically and and they just kind of stood up and they go, look, everything those guys said, plus we'll do this, this and this for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was just a lot of everybody was laughing and we had a ball like I really love it when uh, CCA becomes the neutral ground for all these kind of traditional competitors. And they're sort of coming and having a good time with meeting students and things. So demand outstrips supply. So a lot of the critique is coming from like nobody's making designers fast enough for us. I think a lot of the traditional design schools in the US are, you know, increasing their capacity to make interaction design happen. Uh, UX designers, we're seeing more and more programs coming online. Art Center started one after us. SCAD is just uh, ramping up theirs. Uh, actually, they had some experiments before as a minor, and I think now they're, they're really going into it for real. There's a bunch of graduate programs. It's a fantastic program at University of Washington in the design school. They also have an HCI program, um, but Axel Russler's program in the design school is really nice. But these are all small, small programs. Like we have, in the scheme of things, in the scheme of it, we have about 70 or 80 undergrads. We might be one of the biggest undergrad masters, or sorry, one of the undergrad biggest undergrad BFAs. Uh, the master's programs are all pretty small. They range from eight to 24 people. Um, there's a bunch of for-profit schools coming online that tend to be vocational, like General Assembly and Tradecraft. And there's a new one in Tennessee that's just starting this fall called Center Center. And But even the, the whole pie is much bigger you know, so it's like these are the design schools. We often see the design schools uh, with their so-called ACAT schools, RISD and mm -hmm. us and uh, Art Center and CalArts and all these things as, as like the schools um, as part of our league. But actually what we're seeing now is co traditional colleges and universities are really incorporating design in a big way. Um, a couple of... Uh, uh, let's see. One of my uh, friend and an uh, early advisor who was at Stanford, Scott Clemmer, went down to UCSD to start the design program down there. And that's really exciting. It's like a cross-divisional challenge-based um, design center where they're really trying to bring all the disciplines to bear. So if they're going to do a healthcare challenge, they're going to bring the UCSD medical school along. And um, my uh, former collaborator, Don Norman, is down there also like making this happen, which is just an awesome challenge. They're doing some really cool stuff at uh, I think it's the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, with some integrative programs. ASU is really interesting. Arizona State University, they're mm -hmm. like doing a lot of cross-disciplinary stuff. So a lot of people, and you can see it in the K-12 through space, like a lot of people are really fired up by design thinking. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that movement has been amazing. Um, and pretty quickly, they realized that really design thinking is also design making, is that it's about making stuff and it's it's about bringing it in. And then to do that, you see a lot of the, the schools who are really trying to invent themselves because all education is under disruption right now, um, bringing in making facilities, you know, actually like shop skills and uh, like 
whether it's lightweight or heavyweight, like trying to look a bit more like a design school. Like at, at our school, um, we have studio classroom spaces, but then our whole upstairs is all shops. We have, you know, wood shops, model shops, uh, rapid prototyping, laser, 3D printers, um, and crazy stuff too. The architecture guys have these, um, these uh, 3D printers that kind of squirt out buildings with cement. It's really amazing. Um, so making is like the core of design school. And you're seeing that at more traditional schools. And one of the big things, and you might have heard this from, um, uh, uh, from one of your other podcasts, is that um, there's often this ratio of creative people to engineers, you know, like either it's five to one or 10 to one. Mm-hmm. And then the um, was the Obama challenge of I think 2012 was we need a million STEM, million more STEM graduates, you know, by I think it was 2020, and or 2022. And if you were to use, say, even the 10 to one ratio that we need to you know, 100,000 creative people to match them, and all of the art and design schools together aren't going to create that, like, we're just we're just too small. Mm-hmm. We, have, we have five or 600 graduates a year, and then there's 13 of us a year, you know, maybe if all of those were perfectly aligned, we'd squeak into um, in into, you know, 70 or 80,000. But really, if you're really going to meet the creative need of, um, of honestly, like this nation and the future of the economy here and the creative economy and everything, you you really do need um, all the schools to start um, bringing design in some genuine way. Mm-hmm. Well, um, it's interesting yeah. the way you're talking about it, too, because you're talking about, you know, sort of more in quotes, traditional design education, but also looking at design really going across disciplines right so people that are in a business school are learning about design you know in in the form yeah. of design thinking so it feels like it's it's everywhere <clears throat> yeah it's interesting that that video that kind of partly led me to idea of the, the nightline video you know was one of the hottest things in the best business schools like they were all looking at that going this is the way we should be working you know it's 1999 or something so the business schools really adopted that kind of thing i and I think often the business schools will take a kind of capitalist viewpoint on that. It's like, how do we harness this design thinking for innovation, you know, in order to leverage capital in some way? You know, and of course, the design schools, and I feel like a lot of those other traditional schools that are moving in this way, the way they're looking at it, I think, is like making stuff. You know, it's like, how can we make meaningful things in the world? And how can we um, break down disciplinary boundaries to actually make more meaningful things in the world? Mm-hmm. Because um, in many ways, the disciplines are, are artificial. Um, I, to some extent, they're needed for education because you need focus and you need to give young students um, confidence that they're learning something of value and that they have a, a kind of set of skills. But I think it's also important to break down those disciplinary boundaries and uh, really find ways to work on challenges in multidisciplinary ways. Mm-hmm. And, and I see um, this movement that some people call it challenge-driven education. Um, moving more and more in that direction. And it's really exciting to see K through 12 moving in that way. And, and sometimes I feel it, it really goes back to uh, preschool, like preschools have it often, very often preschools and a lot of the flavors of preschools like the Montessori and the Reggio Emilio and, um, and, and Waldorf as well are like really looking at giving uh, students um, things they're passionate about, following their passions, nurturing their creativity, giving them, kind of agency in either an inquiry or a project. Mm-hmm. And and then somehow it gets lost in our traditional K through 12. But I see <laughs> I see a lot of the K through 12 working on that, you know, really trying to break it down. And it doesn't always work with national standards and things. But, you know, you see a school like uh, Nueva or something that doesn't necessarily have to uh, appeal to that. That's a school out here in California that 
really does amazing job on social emotional stuff and project stuff and, and, and pretty exclusive. And then, you know, to their credit, they also um, run an education program for other schools, which is, which is really nice. So in some ways, as a, as a college professor, I'm, I'm trying to do something to get back to what uh, kids were doing in preschool, actually, which is getting back in touch with their impulses and what they want to do and their making and, and their own sort of inquiry. Sure. It, it, it is an interesting observation that we start off on the right path and somehow somehow have lost it along the way. So let me ask you a question. If um, designers listening to this podcast, if they're interested in, in helping to, to sort of train the next generation of designers, what advice do you have for them on sort of where to start, how to get started? So people that might want to teach or something like that, mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, um, God, that's kind of my, that's a, that's a big bulk of my job. I mean, I, we have, we have a benefit because we're out here in San Francisco and I, I probably walk by 10 great designers every day when I go get a cup of coffee. So that's, that's, that's a really wonderful thing about being out here. Um, but still they're all so busy that it's hard for them to commit the six to nine hours a week they need to do to teach, to teach. And, and believe me, teaching doesn't really pay. So, um, so we're doing it as as a way to get back. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's, in fact, one of uh, uh, one of my colleagues had said, uh, and he was quoting someone else, and I, I think it might have been Tim, Tim Gunn or somebody. But it was, you know, when the elevator goes up, when you get success, you got to send it back down. Mm. Um, and he was saying that's why he wanted to teach, and I thought that was a really lovely. Uh, quote was like, yeah, you know, like once you've gotten to a certain level, it's time to send the elevator back down and help other people kind of come up. So there's the giving back. But I think there's also um, our discipline, sort of UX uh, interaction design tends to be a bit non-hierarchical. For example, a lot of people ask me who my heroes are and and they're looking for famous people. Like every every discipline has famous people like graphic design, and industrial design, always have fashion, you know, have these big names at the top. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom Ford or, you know, whoever. And interaction design is not like that. And I have a theory that it's not like that because to be a good interaction designer, you have to kind of check your ego at the door to some extent. So that's not what you're after. You're after impact in the world. You're not after your name and lights, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you'll notice, like none of the interaction studios um, of, say, my generation, I'm 50 now, and younger have their name on it. Like there were some older ones that um, people are about 15, 20 years older than me that have their name on the on the door. But most um, most of these uh, firms don't have their name. So I think there's something about finding your way in that world um, that teaching can help give um, this this like, how do I how do I be like, how do I actually be a leader in this discipline that's non hierarchical, where sometimes, you know, it's some in some cultures, the youth trumps. Mm-hmm. And and what is what is it that I need to be doing as a as a as a more senior practitioner? And I what I found is a lot of people who come into the classroom, a lot of designers, usually mid, sometimes even senior, say that they find their voice in the classroom. They say, well, it's very clear. It's really nice to step in where there's a very clear age difference and there's a very clear role. Like I'm the teacher. They're paying for this experience for me to teach. And now I need to look and say, what do I know? What do I know? And how do I make the tacit explicit? So there's something about kind of packaging up your content. And I've had a, uh, a few teachers that have, I'm trying to think if anyone's actually executed on this, but uh, definitely a number of teachers have gotten excited. Oh, actually, there have been uh, about writing books and putting together material from their class to write some books. And David Sherwin is one of those. He has a couple of fantastic books out there. Um, and they find something about a comfort in their own knowledge and their voice in their studio. 
and that they'll take that back. Mm-hmm. And that a, a couple of people have credited teaching with giving them the confidence to take that next jump up to a director level kind of position where, you know, I found actually what it was and what it, what it is that I have to contribute and how I want to contribute that in a way that's inspiring. Um, and then I can bring that back into the studio. And so I, I think, so there's the giving back, there's mm-hmm. the sending the elevator down and letting other people rise up. And then there's also the things that it gives you, which is, of course, when we're generous, we're, you know, that's, that's a real gift in itself to yourself. And then the, uh, there's the transformation of finding your voice and finding a kind of leadership voice can be really powerful. Mm-hmm. Good point. So you're shifting gears a little bit. You're teaching a two-day course um, in San Francisco in October with O'Reilly on design thinking. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what you plan to do with the two-day training there um, and what students can expect to learn. Oh, great. I'm really excited about that. And not least at all that I'm going to be co-teaching with Hawken Fasti, who's a faculty at California College of the Arts. Um, we're in an interesting position because we're in San Francisco where design thinking is really prevalent, just 30 miles down the road is Stanford. So we've really been thinking, like, how do we do something that is kind of special and a little bit different and really gets to the roots of design thinking? So we're going to be trying to unpackage a bit the basics, but yet deliver them in a very fresh way through doing uh, which is something we're doing every day at California College of the Arts. So people will be learning about how to go out and observe, how to um, get insights from those observations and also potentially interviews, um, how to bring those back and look for insights and from those insights develop patterns and from those patterns look for opportunities. Mm-hmm. And then from those opportunities, do some brainstorming to diverge and converge and diverge and converge. So brainstorm on opportunity areas in order to come up with lots and lots and lots of ideas in order to filter those down to a few and then expand those ideas into some concepts and then make them real, make them tangible through rapid prototyping and some other skills. And then to sort of assess, stand back. Usually it's nice when you have a night between this to stand back from those ideas and kind of look at them and think about like, what's the right thing to make and how do we roadmap? And then in all that, and I think design thinking is incredibly powerful and it's really worked on you know a global level to help people be more creative. Another important part about that is uh, a kind of systems thinking that we're going to throw in bits and pieces of because design thinking is really like a powerful tool, but it doesn't tell you what to build. So we're also going to look at throwing in a little bit of systems in there to think about the bigger context of, of what to build, because that really helps to make more profound change than, um, say, just at a micro level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Oh, gosh, it sounds mm-hmm. great. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, design thinking in the world. How have you seen it have an impact on, on businesses or organizations? And can you talk a little bit about um, the social lab that you have going there? Yeah. So there's probably two components of that. So one is Apple is is a really used example, but I've really felt that in my life is that the example of Apple having design impact on the world. And back in 2003 or four, I remember a client who was in the home appliance business, you know, saying something like, we want the iPod of toasters. <laughs> and and we're sort of looking at it going, what do you mean? And like, you know, because like, do they mean design? Do they mean a really nice design? Do they mean something really functional? Do they mean something innovative? Like, what do they mean by the iPod of toaster? And it came back as like success. We want success. We want, you know, like, the, you know, big success with this product. And we're like, oh, okay. So you really don't understand what made the iPod successful, right? And, and at that time, like design really was like, or a designer was somebody who helped you pick out drapes or something. It felt like, you know, even in these big corporations where they were doing design all the time, and so Apple was really leading the charge. And then I think once Apple 
did the iPhone, it sort of shifted everything because a lot of people realized that what they had done was taken something that everybody already had and made it really simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the end, more powerful because of its simplicity. Like those of us that were in the mobile business at the time, remember that the feature list of the the, the launch of the iPhone was far less than almost any other the leading phones there. And the feature list is what really made the engineers and the marketing people excited at companies like Samsung and Nokia and that sort of thing. And they're like, oh, this iPhone's nothing. You know, it doesn't, doesn't even do Wi-Fi sharing. You know, it's like, well, it turns out nobody really wanted to do Wi-Fi sharing. <laughs> you know, like not yet. Right. You know, what they really want to do is just access their contacts and make calls and text message really easily and, you know, the kind of, and get their weather, you know, like really simple things like those, whatever those 12 uh, early icons were that were on the, on the iPhone. And so, and then people slowly started to get it. The design was really important. And then Johnny Ive, you know, became um, something of an icon for, uh, for great design is great business. So there's like the great impact out there in the world. And I think that's really helped a lot of people break out of their corporate mold and uh, really break out of the kind of traditional way of thinking inside corporations as they start to say, hey, you know, I don't have to sit in my cubicle and you sit in your cubicle and we're going to have like five meetings at one time, which I actually had seen some of my clients do um, where they're like in one meeting, but they're actually on another meeting on their computer and then they're actually doing email on something else. You know, it's like kind of crazy uh, But you know, there's like bringing focus to something actually brings a lot more quality to something. And then, you know, that all that said, and especially out here where the venture capital is really a huge driving force for what gets made um, that we started at CCA. We started a hybrid lab first, which is a technology play lab where technology is a workable material and started to find the students were resonating a lot with the technology. And what we really wanted to see was students resonating with people. And so with the master's program, and I'm hoping to make it grow and scale, is the social lab, which is actually working with community partners. And so the community partners need to be representatives of real people. And this is in some ways going back to my Scandinavian roots where we're working with unions because mm-hmm. uh, unions are big funders. Actually, so I, when I when I switched from robots to making human computer, uh, making interfaces and uh, interface technologies in, in Sweden, this, the funding switched from the military people to the unions because um, unions are multi, multi-billion dollar funders who are all interested in human potential. Very different organizations than they are in the U.S. And so trying to get back to some of those roots is working with community partners. So this year, we've been working with, uh, for example, the African-American Arts Cultural Complex in San Francisco and looking at the kind of issues that the community is facing here in San Francisco. And we had uh, four or five different initiatives come up. And some of them are, are getting press right now. Like, for example, there's a um, African-American bookstore called Marcus Books in San Francisco and Oakland. And it shut down in San Francisco in um, 2012. And this was actually a big deal. They, they got evicted from their location, but they had been there since the 60s. Martin Luther King had spoke there. Malcolm X had spoke there. There had been several uh, music performance and spoken word over the years. It really was a center for the African-American voice in San Francisco. And when it left, it really felt like a real reification of the sort of um, exodus of a lot of the African-American population in San Francisco due in large to economic factors. And so we've been uh, working with that organization and some of my students got really excited about bringing the bookstore back. And so and this is making making some news now in the in the local papers about how this bookstore coming back is now a, a symbol for um, a reinvigoration of that culture and a kind of instantiation of, of that reinvigoration. And this is, you know, it's the idea. It's a good example of the idea is simple and the execution is hard. So um the idea is pretty simple, like bring a bookstore back to San Francisco. The execution and finding a location and 
like reinventing retail. Like it's probably not a traditional bookstore. It becomes a third place where you want people to hang out and mm-hmm. and, there's, and working with the different partners because the students aren't going to run this business. Like the people that run Marcus Books need to run this business. So this is another kind of great example of doing a challenge out there in the world and realizing that the hard part is actually making it happen, but also realizing the joy of making that happen. Mm-hmm. That is super cool. That is, that's a great story. That's yeah, I'm really hoping. The owner of the store, Karen, uh, is apparently friends with Stevie Wonder. And she says, when this opens, Stevie Wonder will play on the roof. And then I feel like, oh, that's a world event right there. Right, right. Excellent. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about education today, obviously. But I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what other challenges you see sort of facing the design community today. What what needs to be tackled? This is a, a fantastic question. Um, First thing that comes to my mind is what's needed in the design community is, um, especially around technology, is more wisdom. And I say this because I think we are good. We often talk about making the right thing and making the thing right. And I think we're pretty good at that to a certain scale or a certain scope. And, And at the same time, I think we need to be thinking bigger and probably more systemically. I'll give a very tactical example that affects everyone's lives today. So right now, phones have become this object that gets pulled out and it steals people's focus in a way. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not, I remember about four or five years ago, I took a picture of everyone at the Caltrain stop, which is our local commuter train. Um, <laughs> everyone was looking at their phone. And I thought that was astonishing. And, and it made sense too. It's like, hey, everyone's just kind of disappearing for a few minutes. You know, so instead of just gazing around um, or talking on the phone, they're like, you know, staring at the phone. And so now this is a really easy picture to to get, you know, and I've heard that uh, pedestrian accidents on the streets are on the rise from people staring at their phones. And so when I look at that from a designer's perspective, I think designers were doing an excellent job in meeting, for example, the KPIs, the key performance indicators of their organizations, like getting people to use this thing more, you know, all those traditional web metrics, like more impressions, more eyeballs, more consistent use, you know, more messages, whatever those things are. I think they do an excellent job of that. But yet, I don't think any designer is really proud of the bigger culture that they've created. This kind of everyone's focus being on the what one of my friends calls the fondle slab that, you know, that they're just sort of looking at these things and stroking these glass screens. And, you know, it's just sort of people are disappearing. And a lot of people are talking about that. And I feel if we somehow had more wisdom about what we're doing, we'd be able to look at the bigger picture and have more um, more influence on what we're trying to do. And I, uh, as an example, I, I really like what Tristan Harris is doing with uh, time well spent mm-hmm. and saying, like, how can we design differently? And, I, you know, this is a, this is kind of a, a I'll make a nerdy point um, that. Some of the greatest designers I've worked with, and I've worked with a lot of just amazing designers who've gone off to do amazing things like start their own companies and sell for eight, nine figures, um, that uh, a lot of people are influenced by um, the notion, I use that word very carefully, the notion of, of Mike Chiksamahai's flow, like this idea of flow. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like they never really um, went into those manuscripts and actually understood it and digested it. And that's not necessarily, you know, designers aren't really academic wonks. So I wouldn't expect them to go back to the psychology journals of the 80s and really read those things. Um, when I was at University of Chicago, I was studying cognitive science and uh, Mike Jukesimahai was one of the professors there. And I, and I did read those and I, and I actually am planning to go back to those to sort of see what wisdom is there. But he was very clear about the difference in flow. Um, 
his notion of flow had a human potential in it, had a, had a notion of growth and, and, a, and a kind of enhancing the human potential. And people were following this flow and they were learning and they were growing. And that's what made them really excited. And he was very clear to differentiate that from addiction. Mm. And I think, I think we're kind of in that space many times. And another big factor is that uh, I, I've been in this business for, what, 25, a little more than 25 years. We used to see advertising as the other. Like there's those advertisers and they, they do pixels and things, but they're really different. And slowly, especially over the last 10 years with Facebook and Google, um, advertising has actually become one of the main businesses. When you look at the three, let's say four biggest companies, so my, and, uh, U.S. companies, so Microsoft, Google, Facebook, and Apple, Apple is the only one that's really still focused on content. Um, the other three are really about advertising. And I think Google does this in a much better way than Facebook because Facebook's really about impressions and, and trying to put things in front of you where Google's really trying to give you what you search for. But um, we've kind of become the advertising business. And that's sort of, I think, has snuck up on a lot of us where we thought that was the other, you know, because interaction designers and UX designers kind of come from a place of meaning. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think there's something about that where addiction is actually good for the advertising business, but I don't think it's necessarily good for the interactions business. Um, so, so that's why I say more wisdom. And uh, maybe that thing I'd mentioned earlier is like being able to talk to power, being able to talk to CEOs and talk to boards and have influence at that level is a place where we could actually shift this, this KPI focus a bit. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It is. It's, it's, you talk about, you know, having a certain awareness and responsibility, um, which is fascinating that it, it does feel as though when you talk to other designers, some don't even recognize that, that piece of it, the influence you have on so many other humans. Um, yeah, I, I, that's a great point. I think they do at some level, like, um, you know, like I don't know a Facebook designer, whether the most junior or the most senior, who doesn't say we influence a billion people every day. But I don't, I'm not sure if we're able as designers to slow down enough to really think about what that means to influence a billion people every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is interesting. So talk to me about um, one final question. What people or projects um, do you find interesting these days? And it can be anything. Oh, well, that's great. I think one of the greatest things of my lifetime, one of the greatest human achievements of my lifetime is uh, Nelson Mandela's rise to power and the truth and reconciliation in South Africa. I I think that took so much. um, I'm going to call it humanness to make that happen. You know, as opposed to animalness or something, we, we often talk about the three-part brain. There's a lizard brain, the cat brain, and the neocortex, which is the, really the human brain. And the lizard, lizard brain is the one that wants to fight and, and have sex and, and eat, you know. And <laughs> kitty, kitty cat brain wants to be stroked. And really, that's kind of where Facebook is living. You know, it's like, do you like me? I like you, you know. And, and really, it's in that kind of neocortex in the, in the human brain where great things happen. And, uh, and it's overcoming those other two things as well, you know, overcoming the comfort, or overcoming the fight or flight. And, um, and I just, I, I think in terms of like human potential and social potential for uh, Nelson Mandela to rise up and then, um, you know, greet the enemy and say like, let's do truth, truth and reconciliation here. Because there really was the potential of armed struggle there. The ANC was about to rearm and uh, that would have been a pretty bad outcome. And, um, so one thing that I thought was really exciting is that kind of studying that a bit led me to see this group called Rios Partners, which was a, a consultancy that was um, 
I think it's, it's still running, uh, it's running from the late 90s into the 2000s and was really doing amazing large scale challenges like uh, doing a little bit of work in South Africa, but also in Colombia. And they would convene these workshops that I see as really like big forms of interaction design um, where they've got the leaders of of FARC, the leaders of the current political government, the business leaders, the uh, drug lords, and they're like got representatives there and they're having these workshops. And uh, Adam Kahane, who's uh, one of the founders of that organization, had said there was a woman in there uh, who said, why are we having this workshop? Because there's people in here who have tried to assassinate me five times. And he said, we're here because we don't want there to be a sixth. Mm -hmm. And so they're doing really kind of profound mediation. And I feel like this is uh, an amazing place for interaction designers to go um, to really look at a bigger perspective on what we're trying to do. Because technology is influencing everything. And it certainly can influence um, the way humans interact in all these different situations. Um, from from that, so Ria's partners have wonderful case studies up there about just facilitating uh, creative workshops and looking at futures. And then uh, one of the partners there, Zaid Hassan, um, has really inspired me because he went off to write a book called Social Lab Revolution. And it really was incorporating a lot of the practices from the Bay Area and tech, like Agile and Lean and um, like throwing throwing away plans and like really looking at how do we how do we prototype um, and how do we um, make sure that we're grounded in the social like for for example for us it's the community partners and uh, how can we experiment so uh, I'd say uh, Zaid Hassan has been an incredible influence on me thinking about where I think our students need to go and where what kind of future problems and future challenges because when we look out at all the challenges that really matter. You know, one of the challenges is just the economy in general, like the the the, the gap of the middle class. And I think um, Douglas Rushkoff is, has an excellent message around that in his in his new book, throwing throwing rocks at the Google bosses. Like we really need to examine growth and rethink that. Um, that all these challenges are social in nature, and they're social complex challenges. Like looking at the environment, we know what's happening. We don't know how it's going to affect, and we know what we need to do. But to get there is really a social complex challenge that you really need to get. You need to get oil in, in that conversation and you need to get um, politicians in that conversation and you need to get uh, financiers in that conversation. It's like a really like large scale conversation that in order to affect something like uh, climate change and the environment, we really need to, which is really just humanity's future, right? right. That's, <laughs> I mean, this is an amazing thing. Is we often uh, there was a, there was um, you know marketing before that was like save the earth, and I, I think the earth is going to be fine. I you know it'll shake us off in another million or two years. It'll start a new species or something. But it you know what it actually is is the human race. Like it's like save the humans, you right? Know? Save ourselves. This is, right. This is our domicile, right? <laughs> so and but to get to make traction on those things, you really need to be able to have deep conversations and generative conversations and. You know, again, it goes back to the lizard brain and the neocortex. Like the human brain can come up with creative solutions. Like one of my favorites is these panels that would work as roads, but they would generate electricity and then kind of like slot cars, your cars could go along them without any batteries. You know, it'd just be like this amazing thing. Like, oh, what if the roads all created power? Like, wow, that's amazing. But to make that happen, it's such incredible infrastructure that would need to happen and have become feasible and have economics have to work out. But the uh, the dark side of that is like if we stay in our lizard brain around that, then we end up in resource wars. And so, you know, there's like really big questions in front of us. And that's that's why I think um, wisdom is the is the kind of thing that'll make make the big difference. 
That's excellent. Well, Christian, thank you so much for joining me today. I really had fun with this. Oh, so did I. Thanks for asking all these great questions. <laughs> you can reach Christian through his Twitter handle, at Christian S. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the O'Reilly Design Podcast through iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn, so you never miss an episode. <laughs>